Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger. And as always, we have another amazing guest. Today with us is David Bland. You may have seen and heard him around this innovation space. He's the founder of Precoil. And I wanted to have him back on the show because he's the co-author of a new book called Testing Business Ideas. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you back. You're on the show a couple of years ago, and then you came out last year to the IO Summit. And so we've been back and forth with conversations about innovation. And you've been working on a brand new book with Alexander Osterwalder, who's also written the Business Model Canvas, and it's the next in the Strategizer series. It's coming out soon, I know, but I wanted to get you on to preview to our audience some of the things that you've been working on. Talk a little bit more in detail about that. Yeah, it's super exciting being able to write with Alex is a big learning process for me as far as how do you create a very visual landscape style book, right? So business model generation, full color, landscape style. He really set the tone and the trend for those kind of business books. It's just a really interesting process to learn. How do you lay a book out? How do you conceptually lay a spread out? And then what are you trying to say? And how do you sketch it out? I feel like I need to write a post or something just on the process. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Because it was, let's use some post-it notes and some sticky notes and let's write out some concepts and then talk about them. And then let's sketch and draw what this pages should look like. And then let's start talking about content as far as text. And in the past, I've stalled out on a couple books and I thought, well, I'm just going to start writing and it's going to come together. And this one is conceptually sound. Conceptually, what are you trying to explain on a spread? And then it's almost like the text comes last. It is really, really interesting process. I think you're positioning it as a field guide for rapid experimentation. From what I understand, from what we've talked about, it's that tactical book that everybody has been craving with regard to how do I actually do this? How do I actually run experiments? What are some examples? Things like that. So take us through a little bit about what the book is about and how does that lay out? Really, if you're going to write a book, you have to have a job to be done behind the book, right? And so (laughs) we spent the last year pulling together what have we seen with teams? What have we seen in the market as far as how people test their ideas? And it's kind of the intersection of business model and product. So there's product experimentation in there, but there's also back-end business model experimentation Hmm. as well. And it contains 44 experiments. And so they have a taxonomy applied to them. And we basically run round and round and round about, okay, how would we actually organize these so people could run with them? Because ideally you're saying, hey, I have this kind of risk. And the way we frame risk is very much from everyone like familiar with the design thinking, desirable, viable, feasible. So you have risk around, do people want this? Should we be doing this? And can we do this? And then what kind of experiments would you run based on that risk? So what I had observed in just doing my work was there's a real gap in knowledge there about, hey, well, we know how to do landing pages and surveys and interviews, but what else is out there available? And then why would I do it to learn about my risk? Because you don't just want to spend all that time, effort, energy doing something and then find out, wow, it didn't generate the evidence I needed to really de-risk this thing I'm working on. Right. Or you run the wrong experiment or you run it incorrectly in such a way that doesn't give you the right signal or you have to do additional things to figure out the next step. 
you mentioned there's some taxonomy around how do you structure these types of experiments depending on what you're trying to solve for. So like you said, people are familiar with customer development interviews and focus groups and some of that kind of stuff that's been out there. What other experiments have you seen in the marketplace or do you talk about in the book? So it's really going from low, really short experiments with a low strength of evidence, things like what people say versus what they do. And I feel like there's a lot of information already out there. But I think one of the things I saw with the teams I'm working with was they would do some interviews and then they would jump to something really high fidelity and like building an entire product or building an app based off of interviews. Why I was trying to fill the gap is saying, okay, well, yeah, you did some interviews. Great. But you kind of need to do that next thing that's a little higher fidelity that helps you generate a little more evidence. The framing we use in the book is, hey, can you go from low evidence to this low strength of evidence is really high strength of evidence where maybe you're doing something like a concierge where you're manually delivering the whole product or the offering to people and learning about, okay, desirable. So do they want this? But also learning about viable. So you could charge for it. And then also learning about feasible in the sense of, okay, can we feasibly do this? What are the steps we take to do that? Some of these experiments, really, I'm trying to fill in the gaps between the super low fidelity, what people say, and then the super high fidelity, what we have to build the whole thing to get what they'll do. Hey, listeners, I wanted to pause this episode to talk about a new partner, RSM. In this fast-paced environment, you need an advisor who thinks ahead and rapidly responds to your challenges and changing needs, and RSM is that partner. As your business advisor, RSM will work with you to turn innovative ideas into reality. RSM is a proud sponsor of this podcast and the upcoming IO Summit, and we're so excited to have them on board. We've decided to cut a bonus podcast episode so you can really learn about how RSM delivers the power of being understood. Check it out or go to rsmus.com slash IO. You've been in this space forever since dawning of the lane startup and everything else around that. What has changed in this experimentation process? How have your clients learned and adapted and what's that evolution been like? First, it was just landing page, all the things. So everyone wanted to do a landing page. They weren't really sure what kind of evidence it was going to generate, right? They thought, okay, well, some people will sign up or maybe a little pre-order. But there wasn't really a driving hypothesis behind it. It was more like I read some lean startup blogs and some things out there and it looked like landing page or the things to do. So let's do that. And mm-hmm. I really have seen it evolve into, okay, let's be more systematic about this. And what is the hypothesis we're trying to test? And maybe the landing page still works, but maybe it's not the best way to go about like generating the evidence we need. I've also seen the terminology just get absorbed into other industries. When I speak at product management conferences, I hear all this terminology, but framed in the language of product managers. Hmm. So it's been super interesting to me to see start out this niche startup lessons learned movement founded by Eric Ries that's now kind of permeated the entire product management community and the entire entrepreneurship community. It's been really, really interesting to see that take shape and form over the years and become something more just, oh yeah, this is just good product management. We don't really call it lean startup. We don't call it this. This is just stuff we do to make sure we're on the right track. You mentioned earlier, it's permeated beyond product. This idea of experimentation, how can you experiment around the strategy itself, the business model, in addition to the physical product or the offering around that and how that's probably adapted and changed based on people just understanding that business models themselves are and can be pretty big differentiators in the marketplace. Part of that is the business model canvas going viral, and it's almost in every entrepreneurship program accelerator I go into. Now it's being taught at different levels of kind of capability, but 
people are pretty, when I show it to people, if I'm doing a startup accelerator in Silicon Valley, people in there have already seen it. But where they've stopped is they didn't really understand how to address the risk in it. And then they didn't understand how to make that a repeatable process to, hey, let's always be paying down our risk. And so it's really just kind of connecting the dots, some amazing movements going on in the community, but they haven't been connected in a way where people finally see the aha moment of the outcome. I think they've been really separate. It's been, hey, sketch out your strategy over here in a canvas. And there's all this lean startup stuff and design thinking stuff over here about like finding a problem and experimenting but people just weren't connecting the two and they should totally be connected in the sense of if you're running experiments, you should be connected to your strategy and there's a reason and a drive behind it. I totally agree. And I think the other thing I've seen is a lot of folks do the business model canvas or do their customer discovery interviews. Or they do a little bit of stuff and they say, okay, now we're done with that. Let's just do it like we've done it before. Not thinking that this is really a mindset and an evolution that should continue to be part of the business process as you grow, as the market changes, as your competitors change, things along those lines. Yeah, I mean, it kind of never stops. I mean, right. discovery isn't a phase where you do all this like, customer discovery up front and then you just build. I mean, you could get away with that in the past. And if you got it right, you looked like a genius. And if you got it wrong, it was kind of like, well, <laughs> you know, nice try, you know, dragon. But now it's more of, we keep talking about product market fit and all these different terms. It's not a static thing. And your business model certainly isn't static. So imagine, just look at retail, just look at automotive industries, right? It's what people expected even five, 10 years ago is very, very different now. It's almost like cars as a service now, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. your old traditional business model, it's just not a static thing that you can just leave in place. Let's talk a little bit about some of the new things that you're seeing out there, maybe some of the other trends you've been dealing with. Are you seeing anything out there that is changing the landscape of how people should be thinking about these things or executing on this stuff? You know, I do see, again, this need for experimentation really kind of taking hold. And I see it's mostly driven by market pressure. So, for example, I see it evolve from, okay, we need to move fast, right? To right. we need to move fast and learn things to, well, we need to move fast and put that learning into action. <laughs> and so this like idea of learning faster than everyone else is great, but I've noticed the market isn't going to reward you for learning faster. It's going to reward you for delivering stuff that solves a problem at a price point that people, it's desirable and viable. So there's been this really interesting evolution over time. It's not just about going fast anymore. It's about, okay, I need to go fast, but I need to learn and I need to take that learning and put it back into our roadmap, into our strategy, into our backlog and actually use it in a real way. And it's just subtle, but it's really interesting to see it shift over time. Like Jeff Bezos has this great quote, right? Where he says, if we focus on our customers and our competitors focus on us, we're going to be fine. Right. And it pretty much plays out that way. Like if you can learn faster in the market from your customers than anyone else, and then use that to build new things or shape what you have, it's really, really tough for other people to compete with you because at best they can just copy what you did, but they don't know why you did it. Right. You've worked for some amazing companies, you know, GE and Adobe and Toyota and HP and all these folks. What are some of the separation points? What makes a good innovator or a good company that's doing this, hitting on all cylinders versus companies that seem to be struggling with it? Are there particular obstacles or particular things that make a company stand out or fall back? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the market rewarding you or having some kind of outcome that you can point to that's a success which is tough because a lot of this is experimentation and you may not always succeed, right? I mean, ideally you won't always succeed. You're going to have some failures, but people really latch onto that. Oh, wow. You solved this problem that we couldn't solve. How did you solve it? And then backing your way into the process of how you solved it. 
So that's been a real interesting journey for me is seeing teams like not necessarily get excited about the process, but socializing in a way where, hey, we had this really amazing outcome. And then, oh, by the way, this is how we worked. And then, oh, maybe there's a way we can replicate that. And so I think it's a combination of that. And then also just this belief in leadership of, look, we need to invest in our people. And so when you do that and you have career development programs where they're teaching experimentation, Mm -hmm. right, and anybody can sign up for it, it becomes this amazing thing where you're like democratizing the process in the org. And it's a long journey, right? If you keep your eye uh, on the ball, it's still hard. But if you have turnover in the leadership team or your champion leaves, then it can be really almost like a reset button where I find people want to fall back to how they've always worked because it feels safe. They feel like, well, you know, you can measure me on how many things I deliver because that's very visible and that's a transactional kind of relationship, but it works. And so I've noticed like, unless you keep pushing that forward, it's really, really easy to fall back into, well, this is the way we've always built it. And then you almost have to start completely over again and re-educate people, you know, try to get that momentum. So my advice to people trying to do this would be keep at it. Like don't necessarily assume that people are just going to work this way now because you've given them some workshops and some training and some videos. Like it's a really multi-year journey. Yeah. A lot of it comes down to that fear of failure and the old way of work. Experimentation by default is like you said, kind of messy and you're going to make some bad assumptions and fail on that. And that's typically not rewarded in most uh, organizations. So how do you get the culture right to understand that that's part of the process, it's part of the learning, that's part of what you need to be doing on a regular basis to move the organization forward. Yeah, it's very much an investment. So, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I keep pointing to Adobe as an example, because I think they're doing a phenomenal job. Not only are they launching new products that they've tested in the market, but they've also built a program. So Kickbox is one of the programs. And it's a program to level up their people and say, look, hey, you're over here on this team. And maybe that team as a whole hasn't really adopted experimentation yet but we're going to give you the opportunity to do it. And it's more like career training, learning and development. So Mm -hmm. they can go through the process and then they try to find a way to apply it on their team. Maybe they even move to a different team and apply it in a different situation inside the company. This has been going on for over five years now, at least, you know, inside the company. So I feel like they're just one of the companies that I point to as a, Hey, take notice the market's rewarding them for what they're doing. And they're also leveling up their people. So it's working over there. That's an interesting point. So we talk a lot about the process, but from a talent people perspective, if obviously these are the types of people that are going to be driving the new world order and new experimentations, et cetera, are there particular kind of skill sets or mindsets that you see in people that get this better or do it better than others? Anything you're noticing from the talent perspective? Well, something we try to do in the book, tying it back there, is we did give some advice on what teams look like, you know, successful teams we've seen, at least teams are able to perform well. And it's almost like three different aspects. The first is the team design itself, right? So having people that are really creative problem solvers obviously helps people that can deal with uncertainty, people that have initiative where they're not waiting for work to be assigned to them. They're not afraid to go and pull the work in and work on it. And so they're not just kind of sitting around waiting to be assigned stuff. So there is some personality stuff there. Another thing I've noticed is when I go into these companies, sometimes people are like, well, we don't have entrepreneurial people. We need to hire from the outside. And my pushback is like, no, you probably do. They've just never been given a chance to be entrepreneurial really. So I do push back on that notion that in order to be innovative and entrepreneurial, we have to hire outside the org. I firmly believe that inside your company, you do have people that are entrepreneurial. But there is an element of team design and, you know, usually cross-functional is a way to go, a balanced team with product design and engineering. 
And then beyond that, though, they have to exhibit like behaviors that help align them this way of working. So things like being customer centric, being data influenced, being willing to test the status quo. And so you get the behaviors and it's like, okay, so we have a team design that kind of works with people, the personalities work. We have the behaviors of like they're exhibiting behaviors that we'd like to see, you know, but then there's also the environment. And that's the big thing I think people maybe have been not as attentive to. If you put a team like that in an environment that won't let them access the customer, gives them like 10 projects to work on at once, tries to shut them down every step along the way, they're eventually going to kind of stall out and they're going to give up. And so I'm trying to help educate leaders in that, look, it's your job to keep an eye on that environment and create an environment where working this way can sustain. So we do have some of that in the book, but I do think there is an element around this, around, you know, the people and the team design and the behaviors and the environment that, you know, if you neglect some of those, you're just going to make it even harder on yourself. Well, David, I wanted to get people access to the book. I know it's upcoming, but they can pre-order. So if they want to find out a little bit more about the book or about yourself, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, they can go to my site, precoil.com. It's also on strategizer.com since I am co-partnering with them on the book. And then the book is available for pre-order on amazon.com. If you just search for testing business ideas, you will see that it's available for pre-order there. I know it will be a bestseller. I appreciate you, David, for coming on the Inside Outside Innovation podcast and look forward to continued conversations about the world of innovation. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate. <laughs>